there are, I've learned that there are two types of people when it comes to getting things done. There's people who like to plan it all out, and there's people who like to play it by ear. How many of you in this room, you are a plan it all out? You like to plan it all out. And how many of you are play it by ear? You like to play it by ear. Now, I actually have discovered there's a, there's a third type of person. By the way, if you're married to each other, God bless you. God, God, <laughs> God bless you and keep you and strengthen you. Um, but I've, I've learned that there's actually a third type of group. There's the plan it all out. There's the play it by ear. And then there's the panic the day before group. And they're not good at planning, and they're also not good at playing, by, playing it by ear, but they they're really have a lot of expertise in panicking. And, uh, you know, Aaron and I, my wife, Aaron and I, we're both, we're both planners and I'm glad for that. And, uh, when it came to the idea of having a family and having kids, we we're kind of planners. Like we wanted to know the gender because we wanted to plan. And in fact, we're, we're such planners that before we had any children, we talked about the names of potential children. And Aaron and I, uh, interestingly enough, had the easiest time picking boys' names. We've had two boys' names for like 13 years, just like sitting on a shelf ready, ready to be used. But if you know our family, we proceeded then to have three girls. And uh, choosing the names of the three girls was not quite as easy. In fact, every time it was difficult, it was challenging. And our oldest girl's name is Lilia Grace. And once we named her Lilia Grace, uh, we kind of thought, well, let's keep some symmetry in the future names. And so if you know our girls' names, the first names of each of our girls has three syllables in it because we just I like that symmetry, Lilia, Caroline, Madeline. But also the middle names all represent different characteristics that uh, people might have. So it's Lilia Grace, it's Caroline Joy, and it's Madeline Faith. And interestingly enough, each of their middle names really embodies them in a lot of ways and their story. Lily, our oldest, is, uh, when I think of Lilia Grace, I think of our oldest daughter who just has such a rich understanding in her heart of the goodness of God and the grace of God and the gospel and is very gracious towards others. Caroline, despite being a real introvert, really the only introvert out of the three, uh, she is just so full of joy and the expressions on her face and the ways that she enjoys life and just kind of drinks it all in. And then Madeline, our youngest, who was born at 27 weeks, you know, that word faith meant so much to us as we we watched her in the NICU for three months and watched her endure brain surgeries and different challenges that she has. And, and so it's neat how those names worked out. Um, grace, joy, and faith. This morning, our text is about the topic of faith. And we are in our series, we're walking through the gospel of Luke. And this morning, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 7. And this might be a story that's familiar to you, and it's all about faith. So let's look at this together. Luke chapter 7, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 10 from the ESV translation. It'll be on the screen for you if you need it. You can open up in your Bibles. You can turn there on your phones. It's also in your handout. Here's what it says. After he, referring to Jesus, after Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, 
and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under, set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What kind of faith do we see in this story? What kind of faith do we see in this centurion? What kind of faith? Here's a question that kind of stuck with me all week long when I was reading through this text. What kind of faith makes Jesus marvel? What kind of faith is amazing to Jesus? And we're going to learn two things from this text about the faith that the centurion displayed, the faith that the centurion had. And the first thing is this. It was a faith that works. It was a faith that works. Well, what do we know about, what do we know about this centurion? So centurions, right in their name is the word century which was indicative of how many soldiers would have been under their command. So centurions would have commanded about 100 soldiers. Actually, throughout time, it changed, a li- it changed a little bit. It was actually more like 60 to 80 troops. Centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. They were the ones in charge of discipline. They would have run the boot camps. Centurions were well-paid. They made 16 to 17 times what the average soldier would have made. And the highest-ranked centurions actually would have made 30 to 60 times what the average soldier would have made. For this centurion, who we don't know his name, but for this centurion to be living where he was and the way he was, he probably was retired. And the reason we think this is because where he was living was nowhere near the nearest Roman legion, which would have been stationed in Syria. But also, did you notice that he had enough money to do what? Build for the Jewish people their synagogue in Capernaum. And, and, and so this indicates a lifetime of saving. And this centurion, when we meet him, he has a servant who's near to death, and his servant, the text says, is of great value to him. And he has heard about Jesus, word about Jesus, this Jewish teacher, preacher, miracle worker has already spread up into the Gentiles and up into the hierarchy of the Roman soldiers, all the way up to the centurion. And he calls the Jewish elders and tells them, here's my situation. I have this servant who's sick, who's near death, and I love him, and he means a lot to me. And so they go to Jesus on his behalf. And what I find so interesting is that when they go to Jesus, what they say to him is, he is worthy. He's worthy. That Greek phrase, he is worthy, actually comes from a slang term in the Latin. And essentially, here's what they said to Jesus. This man deserves this. This man deserves for you to do this. And then they give him the reasons. This man is worthy, and here's why. He loves our people, which means he was a Gentile. He was a Roman centurion who was at least sympathetic, if not embracing, of Jewish people and the Jewish culture. But also, he had built for them, and the indication here in the text is he wasn't part of the uh, donations to build the synagogue. The indication here is that he funded the full building of this synagogue in Capernaum. And many people believe that he was a God-fearing Gentile. Although he hadn't fully converted to Judaism, he was one who had placed his trust in the faith of the Jewish people. And so they give him these reasons, and they say, here's all the things he's done. Here's his resume. He's worthy. I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, our our whole lives, uh, we spend so much energy looking for something to make us worthy. Looking for something, uh, maybe it's our accomplishments, it's the things we've done in our lives, it's our our achievements, maybe it's our appearance, 
the way we look, our, our physical fitness or our, our beautiful smiles. My mom always said that uh, bushy eyebrows are handsome. And so that's my, that's my claim to fame here. My, now, no one else has ever said it to me, but mom said it, so it must be true. Your physical appearance, right? So, so that's my claim. That's my, that's my, my sense of worthiness. Uh, maybe it's your connections. It's your allegiances. It's your affiliations. It's because I'm connected to this group, because I can, because I work at this place, because I'm a member of this club, I'm worthy. Or, or it's your relationships, because someone loves me, because I have a spouse, because I have children, because I have grandchildren, I'm worthy. Maybe it's your talents, the things that you're known for, the things that you're best at, your areas of expertise. Or maybe it's your possessions. It's what you own. It's your beautiful home. It's your new car. It's the clothes that you wear. It's the finances that you're able to spend however you want. But whatever it is, every single one of us navigates life looking for something or someone to make us worthy. And once we think we find it, what do we do? We hold on to it pretty tightly. And we wear it like a badge, and we pin it to our chest, and we put it on our resume, and we bring them up in conversations whenever we can. We, we post about them online. And by doing this, here's what we're saying. I'm worthy, and I deserve your attention. I'm worthy, and I deserve your approval. I'm worthy, and I deserve your acceptance. I'm worthy. I deserve something. And the best, by the way, of course, we all know this, the best is when we don't have to say it, but when somebody else says it for us, right? You got a wingman with you who, who, who sings your praises, who talks about how great you are. The best is when someone else sings your praises, especially when it's, a, especially when it's someone that you wouldn't expect it from, right? So like I joked about my mom, oh, that's not a joke, that really, that, that, that did happen. But my mom would say, well, you know, bushy eyebrows are handsome, they're handsome. And so, you know, moms and dads, we're great at encouraging our kids and saying, you're, you're handsome, you're a hard worker, you're doing great, your school project was awesome. And eventually kids kind of catch on. And at some point, most kids will say to you, you have to say that, right? You have to, you're my mom, you're my dad. And even though we love them the most and our words should mean the most, the truth is, is they don't mean as much because we are not an unexpected source of encouragement. But when somebody who you're not expecting it from says something great about you, that really, right, really causes you to puff up. I've had the opportunity in my life to have a couple books published and um, a lot of people have said a lot of different things about it and I'm grateful for that. But I remember one time my cousin, who I don't know very well on my mom's side of the family, she was visiting and she's a published author. And she's an editor for like, if, if you can think of a big name fashion magazine that you walk by in the aisles of Wegmans, she's been an editor for one of those magazines. She's big time in Manhattan. And uh, I gave her my books, just thinking like, she's, here's a published author, here's an editor. And she also wouldn't probably call herself a Christian. So I thought, I don't know if this will be of any interest or value to you. But, and she read them, uh, and she messaged me on Facebook and was just so kind and encouraging. And it meant so much to me because it was sort of this unexpected source of saying, you're worthy, you, you did a good job. And when the Jewish leaders speak up for a Roman centurion, that's sort of what's happening here. That's not the source of support that you would necessarily expect. And so they appeal to Jesus, the Jewish leaders, the elders, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, he's, he's worthy. He deserves for you to do this for him. And here's why. And they appeal to Jesus on the basis of his performance, on the basis of his record, on the basis of his resume, on the basis of his goodness. And the story goes on and Jesus says, goes with them. And when they're not far from the house, the centurion sends a messenger, and the messenger comes and says something that totally flips the story. The messenger says, 
the centurion wants you to know he's not worthy. So on one hand, you have people saying he's worthy, and then the centurion has the self-awareness and the humility to say, I'm not worthy. See, in the eyes of society, this man was worthy. He was definitely worthy, not just for the good things that he had done for the Jewish people, but he was worthy because he was a man of wealth and success, and he had given his life to the Roman nation, and he led them into victory, and his status in society, if anybody was worthy, it was the Roman centurion. But he knew somehow that wasn't enough. It didn't make him worthy. Jesus is a Jewish Galilean peasant, The centurion is a Gentile, a man of wealth and influence, yet the Roman officer not only regarded himself as undeserving of having Jesus come under his roof, he's so unworthy he won't even, he can't even meet him in the street. This is the sort of humility that he has. So despite having all the natural reasons to be impressed with himself, he wasn't. Everyone else thought he was worthy and he knew better. And here's what we learn. A faith that works. If your faith is going to work, then a faith that works starts by seeing myself not as worthy, but as unworthy. A faith that works starts not with being impressed with myself, but by being impressed with Jesus. A faith that works starts not by saying, here's all the things I've done, aren't you impressed with me? It starts by saying, I'm an unworthy person, but Jesus Christ has come for me, and he's made me worthy. The Apostle Paul, about 20 to 25 years after this story happened, he wrote a letter to Gentile believers in Asia Minor in the province of Galatia, Galatia, or sorry, in the city of Ephesus. And he said this in Ephesians chapter 2, famous verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is the sort of verse that would be good for all of us to read every morning when we wake up. And put yourself in there. For by grace, I have been saved through faith. And this is not my doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of my works, so I can't boast. This is one of those verses that just steadies our hearts and writes our mind and our thinking. And it says very clearly, this is by grace alone. You didn't do it. You couldn't do it. Jesus found you just as you were, and he rescued you, and he saved you, and it wasn't your worthiness that made him save you. It was his love and his choice. He says here that it's a gift of God. It's something that you've been given. You cannot earn it. You can only receive it, and you can't boast about it or brag about it. One of the commentators says this, no biblically informed Christian should ever look self-righteously upon an unbeliever. Because the believer understands his or her own humanity and heart, our proneness to wander. Jesus is on our side. Is that a good truth this morning? Jesus is on your side. He does not just love and help people who are impressive or think they are worthy. Romans 5.8, God showed his love for us in that while we got ourselves together, while we cleaned our act up, while we became religious, while we started doing better things. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is this centurion's name? We don't know. He's not given a name. Did Luke not know? Could Luke not find out? Luke, this expert researcher, this master historian, 
Luke, I think, would have known. So why doesn't Luke give us the name of the centurion? And later on in this chapter, he doesn't give us the name of a widow whose son is raised from the dead. We don't get the name of the son. In the end of this chapter, we don't get the name of a sinful woman who washes Jesus' feet. We don't get these names. Why doesn't Luke give us these names? And I think one of the reasons why Luke doesn't give us these names is he's trying to protect our protect us from focusing on the wrong person in the story making the wrong person the hero. It's easy to try to make the centurion the hero of this story, but the centurion is not the hero of the story. That's the whole point of the story. He's not worthy. Jesus is the hero, the true hero. You know, in the famous trilogy by uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, as you watch that movie, or if, you're, uh, if you have the diligence to actually read the books, if you read the books, uh, who is the true hero of that story? You know, as you, as you, I wrote down some names of people that we might think is the, the hero of the Lord of the Rings. It has to be Aragorn, right? He's the rightful human king. Or Gandalf, the wise wizard. Legolas, the skillful warrior elf. Anyone who can shoot a bow like that has to be the hero of the story, right? Or Gimli, that funny, fierce, wise-cracking dwarf. Or, okay, if it's not them, then at least surely it's Frodo, right? He's the hobbit who's given the task of carrying the ring into the fires of mortar. But when we get to the end of the story, the end of the trilogy, you realize that the hero actually is Samwise Gamgee. This, this chubby, simple, loyal friend. There's hope for chubby people. I'm grateful. I'm grateful. <laughs> chubby, simple, loyal friend. And he's the one who actually sees the task out when Frodo wavers at the end. It's not the hero we expect. And throughout scripture, it's never the hero we expect. God never chooses the worthy. He comes to the unworthy, and he extends his love and his grace. A faith that works is a faith that knows this first and foremost. It's not my work. If your faith is going to work for you, you have to realize it's not your work. It's all grace, and it's placing your trust and your hope and your faith in Jesus' work on your behalf. Okay, so secondly, we see that there's a faith that works, but also we see in this text that there's a faith at work. There's a faith that is actually doing something. The centurion had a faith at work. Uh, he built a synagogue, which was a blessing to God's people. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the synagogue. It would have been the community center. It's where they would have gathered to read the scriptures and to teach the scriptures. This was different than the temple. There was only one temple, but there were synagogues in different towns, in Nazareth and Capernaum and other ones. And he would have built this synagogue, which would have been a tremendous blessing to the Jewish people. He also, did you notice that he leverages his influence? He's built up a lifetime of good works, and he's willing to leverage it, so to speak, for who? His servant. And in this culture and at this time in history, he would not have been expected to do so. He shows his heart. He says that this servant is dear to me, which in the Greek means this servant is honored. This servant is esteemed. And we get a sense of the graciousness of the centurion's heart. And also, most centurions back then would have been benefactors for people, people who didn't have enough and people who lacked. And so this was a man whose faith was at work. This, was, this is faith not just in theory, not just in theology, not just in talk, but this was faith in practice. People could see his faith. It was a faith at work. And what I've learned in our world today, in America today, is people love to talk about what they believe. They love to talk about how spiritual they are. They love to talk about how good they are with Jesus and how much they love Jesus. But what do we need to pay close attention to? We have to pay close attention to their lives. And of course, primarily pay close attention to our lives. Because the health of the fruit, 
The health of the fruit reveals the health of the root, right? So the health of the fruit, the way somebody lives their life, the way someone practices their faith, faith at work reveals whether or not you actually have a faith that works. And that's what we're going to see here in this passage. In James chapter 2, the half-brother of Jesus writes this passage. I'm going to read to you verses 14 through 17. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Here's what, let's put it in this morning's terms. What good is it if you say you have a faith that works, but you don't have a faith at work? We can't see it. Can that type of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, he's, he's not talking about wants here. He's talking about necessities, food, clothing. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, let's talk for a moment. Let's bring some clarity for a moment to the relationship between faith and works. Because let me just back up again and go to our first point and remind you, we cannot work our way in. Okay? You do not work your way into salvation. You cannot perform your way into acceptance and right standing before God. Not only are your works not enough, many cases they're actually your greatest obstacle. Not only will your works not get you there, they actually end up working against you and keeping you from receiving the grace. You forfeit the grace that's available in Jesus because you're relying upon your work, your goodness, your righteousness, who you are. So, right, let's settle that up front. That's crucial. You cannot work your way in. Your works are not the solution. They actually are the problem. But once you've tasted of the goodness of God, once you've experienced his grace and his mercy, then the inevitable outcome is that your life will be lived in two ways, for the glory of God and for the good of others, okay? Once you've experienced his grace, then you will work out your faith, work out your salvation for the glory of God and the good of others. Here's another way of thinking about this. While you and I are not saved by our good works, we are saved for our good works. Does that make sense? You've not been saved by your good works, but you have been saved for your good works. And Martin Luther had a funny way of saying it. He said, God may not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God may not need your good works, but the people at your workplace do, and the people in need around you do. In fact, the passage we read earlier from Ephesians where it says you've been saved by grace alone, it's a gift, it's not your works, you cannot boast. Here's the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10. I saved it till now. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. Say that with me. For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is that a cool thought? That before God even, before you breathed your first breath, God had prepared for you good works to do, to bless others. God has good works for you to do in 2019. God has good works for you to do this week. And he's not up in heaven this morning making a to-do list for you right now. All right, all right, it's this week. So what's Chuck supposed to do for me this week? No, before he prepared beforehand. He knew the good works that he had. So when he chose you, when he saved you, when he rescued you, it wasn't just to put you up on a shelf like a trophy. It was to send you out on mission for the purpose of doing good works. Right before this story, the centurion story, in Luke chapter 7, the very end of Luke 6, Jesus is giving a famous teaching. It's, it's a version of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, uh, you can read the whole thing in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But let's look at this really quick. 
Jesus, right before the story of a centurion, he says this in verse 46 of Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it. It's because it had been well built. But look at this, verse 49. The one who hears my word and does not do them. The one who claims to have a faith that works but doesn't have a faith at work is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. What's Jesus teaching us here? Very, very simple. The very foundation of your life, the very foundation of your faith is not built on what you say. It's not built on what you claim. It's built on how you live in response to what you claim. It's based on not just your faith at works, it's based on your faith at work. And faith at work always includes, this is in your notes, obeying his word. It always includes obeying his word. And if you pick and choose what you like about Jesus' teachings, yes, I love this whole part over here, this whole part uh, uh, about how much he loves me, and this whole part about how we shouldn't judge people, but this whole part over here about loving my enemies, I'm not a big fan of that. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to choose that part. If you pick and choose what you like about Jesus' teachings, you're still building your life on a shaky foundation because you're not obeying his word. You're obeying basically your own word or your version of his word. Here's some, here's some questions to ask yourself. These are application questions as we think about a faith at work that obeys his word. How have you grown in this past year? In what areas of your life are you more patient than you were a year ago, more kind, more generous, How are you different in the ways that you interact with people face-to-face? How are you different in the ways that you interact with people on social media, online? How are your words and your works bringing life into the lives of those around you? How are you encouraging people? How do people experience you at work? How do people experience you in the neighborhood? If if we were to poll the people who have to, quote-unquote, experience you every day, how has their experience of you changed? over the last year. And I realize these are not the funnest questions to ask yourself, but these are the sort of things we need to consider. When is the last time you did something for someone who couldn't do anything in return for you? These are these sort of self-evaluation, heart check questions we need to ask ourselves. Otherwise, we can think we're obeying his word, but we're not. If you're obeying his word, if you have a faith at work, you're going to see some change in your life. I was was thinking about this all week, this sort of um, balance between um, faith and works. And last night, Lily and I, my oldest daughter, she's 10, we drove over to BJ's Wholesale Club to pick up some of the breakfast stuff for the cafe this morning. And we're pulling into the parking lot and she comes out with this question. She always says this, dad, can I ask you a question? And, um, you know, of course she already did, but then I say, all right, go ahead, ask me another one. And, uh, and, uh, so, um, sometimes it's like, I never know what she's going to ask. You know, with kids, you never know what questions is coming out of their mouth next. And so she says this to me, she goes, can you be a Christian and a bad person, and still go to heaven. And so I thought for a second, and I actually unpacked like a two-minute version of this sermon for her. 
because I was like, well, you know, actually, we're kind of talking about that tomorrow, that on one hand, everybody who's a Christian was a bad person and, and really isn't a good person on their own, but, but when Jesus changes your heart, it, it'll make you want to do things differently. It'll make you want to live differently. And so I, I pour my heart into this like two to three minute answer, and we pull into the parking lot of BJ's, we park, and I'm just waiting, and there's like silence for like 15 seconds. I'm thinking she's really like, spirit's really working in her heart right now. Like this is, this is a really good moment. And she stops and she goes, dad, is Costco's and BJ's basically the same place? (laughs) I was like, Holy Spirit, where are you? Where are you? I was like, no, they're definitely not the same place. We're Costco's people, but we like BJ's too. Obeying his word. All right. A faith at work not just obeys his word, but also trusts his power. Let's go to the very end of this story. We're going to close. And we're going to take a little time at the end of the service to pray for people who need physical healing. Because at the end of the story, this is what we see. We see somebody who is healed physically. At the end of the story, we see the authority of Jesus and we see the power of his word. And I love that the, the faith of the centurion, this is a faith at work. This is a faith that not just obeys God's word, but trusts his word and trusts his power. And the centurion says, Jesus, you don't have to come here. You don't have to touch my servant. You don't have to anoint him with oil. You don't have to get emotional. You don't have to yell. You don't have to jump up and down. You, from a distance, can just speak the word. And I know it's enough because I understand authority. So the centurion who's in the military, he understands that when he gives a command in in the military, when you give a command, you shouldn't have to think about it again. It's going to get done. That's how authority works. Because of who the centurion was, things got done when he spoke. And the centurion knew that Jesus, Jesus, because of who you are, I know that if you speak, it'll get done. Things will get done. And there are so many areas in our lives, and think about it for a moment. What areas in your life, which areas in your life do you need to trust in him more for power and for his authority to be at work? And this morning, we're going to pray for physical healing. And I want to say something about healing and how God heals. And I I believe that there's four ways that God heals people, four different ways, all right? And I think the first way that God heals people is simply by the way he created our bodies. How many of you are fighting off a cold, or have fought off a cold sometime in the last month. A lot of people, right? How many of you are grateful that your body was created in a way that eventually it does fight things off? Your, your blood clots and your cold, eventually your sniffles go away. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. But the first way that God heals is the way he creates our bodies. The second way that God heals is sometimes he heals through the wisdom of doctors and nurses and surgeons and technology, and we give thanks for them. We have so many people in our church who work at different hospitals. I have the opportunity to to do leadership talks at local hospitals. I love our medical community who commit themselves to being agents of health. And I think that's a powerful way, whether it's physical health, mental health, it's a powerful way that God extends his healing power to other people. The third way God heals is through supernatural healing. And that's what we're gonna pray for this morning. We're gonna ask God, would you just supernaturally show up, let the kingdom of God break in on my life right now and break in on my body and provide healing and a glimpse of the healing that is to come. And the fourth way that God heals is this, that's the new heavens and it's the new earth. And someday we'll all have new bodies, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more arthritis, no more on any of that because God will heal. And so there's four ways God heals. Now, sometimes people don't actually like hearing that because they say, well, are you saying that so that we don't pray for supernatural healing? No, of course not. But here's why I'm saying that this morning. I'm saying it so that you will learn, I will learn, we will learn to be thankful for all kinds of healings. 
See, if, if God were to heal us supernaturally this morning, you would give thanks. But what about giving thanks to God when your body just fights a cold off, saying, God, thank you that you created my body, my immune system, so that I get better when I am sick. How about giving thanks to God for doctors and for the nurses and the physicians that help us? And ultimately, don't lose your hope in Jesus and don't lose your hope in his healing power when God doesn't act in your timing or in the way that you want because someday he's going to make all things new and everyone and everything is going to be healed. Everything's going to be made right. Every sad thing is going to come untrue. So we trust his power and his plan. In closing... When Jesus saw this faith, it says that he marveled. And that's the only place in the Gospel of Luke that that verb is used. Or it's the only place in Luke where it's used as Jesus' response to someone else. It is used in other places where it's people's response to Jesus. They marveled at Jesus. But this is the only place in the Gospel of Luke where it actually says that Jesus marveled at somebody's faith. Jesus had done many healings at this point. In fact, that's why the centurion asked for him. But all the healings that are recorded in the Gospel of Luke up until this story were done in proximity, close. Jesus had never done a healing from a distance. And there were Jewish stories back then that circulated about miracle workers, but there was barely any reports of long-distance healing. They didn't really believe it was possible. It was very rare, and it was considered extremely extraordinary that somebody could heal from a distance. They thought somebody had to actually be there. And what I love about this man's faith, and I think what Jesus marveled at this man's faith was this. Not only does he have a faith that works, not only is his faith at work, but his faith was not dependent upon things that he thought to be true already. He was willing to have a faith that believes in things that he can't see. A faith that was not dependent upon proximity. A faith that uh, was defying and even redefining the limitations of how God works. And when God wants to heal us, he's not limited by how we've experienced it in the past. He's not limited by what we think. God, you know, if God wants to heal you, he doesn't need a long prayer. Nothing wrong with long prayers, but he doesn't need it. And there's no record of Jesus ever praying a long prayer over somebody to be healed. He simply spoke the word of faith. So when you come up this morning to receive prayer, we're not going to pray long prayers over you. We don't need to pray long prayers about you, over you. We need to pray the prayer of faith and trust in God and his plan and his purpose. Jesus didn't really ever get super emotional when he prayed for a healing. I mean, the most emotional he probably got was when Lazarus died and he wept before he went to the womb. There's no indication that Jesus got more intense, that Jesus ratcheted up his volume, that Jesus worked himself up. There's no indication of that. Why? Because Jesus was a man who walked in authority and power. And when you have authority and power, you don't have to do any of those things. It's like somebody who's six foot eight doesn't have to walk around saying, I'm tall. I'm tall, right? Everybody knows and we walk around with the authority and power that Jesus has, we can just say, Jesus, if it's your will and if it's your desire, we know that you can heal this person right now, this morning. We speak a word of faith and a word of healing over them, and we ask for you to move and to touch them. And that's all we really have to do when we pray for healing. Because it's his word, not ours. It's his power, not ours. It's his will, not ours. It's his work, not ours. Jesus is the healer. I'm not the healer. You're not the healer. Jesus is the healer. So this morning, we're going to pray the prayer of faith, and we're going to trust not just his power, but we're going to trust his plan. Let's bow our heads together in prayer.